Hi, this is Ashley calling in from Denver, Colorado. Hi, my name's Erica, and I'm sharing a travel story with you. Okay, to set the stage, it was summer 2014. I had just graduated college, and I was going to go on the Great American Road Trip with two friends, one being my best friend from college and the other being an Australian man that we met at a warehouse I was living in in Brooklyn. Hey, it's Will. If you've been listening this season, you probably know we've set up a toll-free hotline to let all of you call in to share your own travel stories. Here's a quick peek at three of the calls we've received so far. So, going on a family vacation a couple years back, and our first stop, we landed in Geneva, Switzerland. My husband and I were swimming in Lake Geneva, and we're watching these, like, really young kids do, like, backflips and all different tricks off the high dive. And so, of course, we look at each other and we're like, I mean, God, if they can do it, we can do it. Like, we got this. We're going to be the first to go off this high dive. Like, we're going to impress everyone in the family. This is going to be awesome. Like, we're going to have bragging rights this whole family trip. We got to a train station in Brussels. We jumped on this train, and, like, it was in the very last car because it was about to pull out. There was a conductor or a person right inside that we were like, is this the train to Bruges? And the conductor somewhat spoke English and was like, yes, just stay here. So we were like, okay. We sat down, and the train takes off. He bought a Dodge Durango for the trip. We have plans to camp in Big Bend National Park. Like any good road trip, we did bring a considerable amount of drugs with us. We did not consider the fact that Big Bend is very close to the Mexican border. We have a considerable amount of cocaine being among the arsenal. We never once considered just throwing out the drugs before having to pass through Border Patrol. So we did decide to kind of go ahead and do all the drugs just on a normal sunny day in West Texas. So my husband goes first and he is 6'6 and very skinny. So I want you to imagine as if a pencil (laughs) jumped off a high dive. He totally wrecked himself. He goes, swims back to shore, acts like nothing happened, still trying to hype me up. So I feel like I can also then jump off the high dive to Lake Geneva. So I do so. I also wreck myself. I for sure broke my tailbone. We had bruises everywhere. Another conductor finally came to come take our tickets and was like, you were on the wrong train. This is the fast train that takes like two and a half hours less and costs $130 more than the tickets we currently held in our hands. My two friends sat silently. They were like watching me to see what I would do to get us out of this situation. And I just looked at the conductor and said, we did ask another conductor. I am so sorry. We thought this was our train. We we tried to confirm the name. We'll pay more right now. Please just let us know. But the conductor sort of like huffed off and was like, I'll be back and never came back. We did the drugs in the height of the day, did not wait until the night because again, we did have a lot to get through. It was a miserable experience. And so by 5 p.m., I was tweaking my ass off. 
agitated, doesn't really begin to cut it. It had been probably like 110 degrees all day. And again, we were just sort of, we didn't enjoy nature on these drugs. We just were sort of sitting at the campsite, like doing, doing the cocaine to kind of get through it. It was a sprint. And when I said that I wanted to smoke the last bit of weed, he kind of had this very sort of like Jack Kerouac perspective of wanting to wait until the sunset in order to smoke this half a gram of weed. And we're literally surrounded by mountains right now in a valley. We're not going to be able to see the sunset anyway. And sort of in the process of arguing about the timing and location of where to smoke this measly amount of weed, a gust of wind came and blew it away. And in that moment, I got my period. And um, yeah, that was... Is this supposed to be the best moment of the road trip? It was probably the worst. Worst part about all of this is that we had a seven-day backpacking trip across the Alps after. So screw you, Lake Geneva. Never going back there. Nobody should either. That high dive sucks. All right, those are three of the voicemails we've received this year, and we are always looking for more. So if you have a travel story worth sharing, call into our toll-free hotline, 1-833-POD-BABY. Yes, we made it very easy to remember. 1-833-POD-BABY. Leave us a voicemail. We might just play it on an upcoming show. On today's episode, we have an interview with chef, author, world traveler, and now writer-slash-director Eddie Huang. He's going to talk about some of his favorite restaurants in the world, eating lobster in the strip club, and his new movie, Boogie. But before we get to that, we have legendary filmmaking duo Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. They've been working on a documentary series about writer Ernest Hemingway, and if you know anything about their previous work, you know they go ridiculously in-depth on their subjects. They turn over every stone, and their six-hour look at Hemingway's life, which debuts on PBS on April 5th, looks at everything, the good, the bad, and even the problematic. But it also showcases something relevant to us. Hemingway loved to travel, and he loved to write about travel. There are still places all over the world you can visit to experience a little slice of Hemingway's life and legacy. And in some ways, Hemingway probably influenced the way an entire generation imagined travel and being an American abroad. So we've got a lot to do. Let's get right to it. This is Thrillist Explorers. I'm Ken Burns, documentary filmmaker. I've just completed directing and producing a film with my longtime collaborator, Lynn Novick. I'm Lynn Novick, and I'm the director and producer of Hemingway. Hemingway was a writer who happened to be American, but his palette was incredibly wide and delicious and violent and brutal and ugly, all of those things. It's something every culture can basically understand. Every culture can understand falling in love with someone. That was author Michael Catechist during the opening minutes of the documentary. It's such an interesting question because he, you know, he is iconically American. How he talks, who his characters are in many cases are American. And I think sometimes Americans abroad, I hope it's okay to say this, but we can be very judgmental, you know, like, I like the hamburgers back home better. You know, we have better plumbing. You know, we have air conditioning. We're used to our creature comforts. I think Hemingway was the opposite. He wasn't interested in that. He was interested in going into a place and being of that place and living where the people there lived as much as he could. 
Over the past year, travel has been essentially non-existent and staying at home and reading has been one of the things that's kept me and probably many other people sane. And I've been turning to books that let me live vicariously through their pages. Books about travel. Pretty much anything set in locations that aren't in a five block radius of my own apartment. And I did gain a new admiration for Ernest Hemingway as a travel writer. And I think that what happens is, is that when Hemingway draws from his experiences, which happens to be around the world, including the United States, he speaks some truths that just about everybody can recognize. And that's what I think good writing about place is really about. It's saying, could you shift your perspective and see it a little bit differently? In our film, the literary scholar Steve Cushman says something about Hemingway's love of travel as a way that when you leave home and you go someplace new, it forces you to see everything new. And that's definitely true for Hemingway, and he's an inveterate traveler going to all kinds of places. In case you're totally unfamiliar with Ernest Hemingway's basic biography, here's Ken Burns doing what he does best. He grew up in a prosperous suburb of Chicago called his Oak father Park. was very much into him being in nature. So he has opportunities as a reporter based in Paris to go all around Europe and report on refugee ambulance driver in World War One. He writes uh, one novel of many consider his best, A Farewell to Arms. He travels around the world. He uh, travels around the United States and then Cuba, where that became his home. So you have somebody who is restless, who needs somehow, as much as he needs a family to nurture him, he's always escaping the specific gravity of that family for whatever reason. And a lot of the reason is to give himself new material, to expose himself. And of course, what I've left out with the brief mention of World War I is that he's also drawn to conflict, the worst of human beings. He felt it was more important for him to be a combatant than to be a reporter of the combatant. And what he reported shows it's not that good. Of course, Hemingway ended his own life in his home in Ketchum, Idaho, when he was 61 years old, after years of suffering through mental illness and substance abuse issues. But Hemingway wasn't just one of the most prominent and influential authors of his lifetime. For many people, his writing helped shape the perception of what it means to be an American abroad. You know, I don't think you would see the people running after in Pamplona the running of the bulls if Hemingway had not written *The Sun Also Rises*. And it's he 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 has a mystique of creating these experiences on the page that makes you want, if you read it, to go there and see it for yourself because it seems so real on the page. It's very hard to even remember what anyone thought about Paris before we read *The Sun Also Rises* and *The Movable Feast*. And so it speaks to not just Americans and our idea of Paris, but I think even to Parisians about some idealized version of Paris that they would like to think still means something to them. You can do a real Hemingway tour of Paris and you can wander the streets of the areas around where he lived on the left bank. I was in Paris for a Hemingway conference a couple of years ago and my partner and I went to one of the famous, famous, famous places he wrote about on the left bank, the Closerie des Lilas. And when you go into the bar area, there's a, a stool where, you know, the place hasn't changed. You can sit in the stool that Hemingway sat. And sure enough, there were people sitting there, in, out, sitting on the stool where Hemingway had sat and, you know, talking to them about why were they there. They loved Hemingway and they knew he went there and it was really important to them to go and sit on the bar stool and order the drink that he drank. You can't say that about too many writers. Well, when you're a very, very famous person, say like George 
Washington, people put up plaques that say George Washington slept here. So there's really no difference. Within the literary world, it doesn't get more George Washington-y than Ernest Hemingway for Americans. And where he lived became important stations of the cross, which fans and curiosity seekers and even people who hadn't read a word of what he'd written would be drawn to. How many people have gone to the San Fermin Festival in Pamplona to watch the bulls and drink at Café Arunia after reading The Sun Also Rises? Or wandered the streets of Paris after midnight while writing shitty poetry in their journals, posturing as a modern member of the lost generation? Bars, cafes, hotels, and bookstores around the world all state claim to be Hemingway landmarks, and some of the places he wrote about have become inseparable from the author. In Paris, you can visit the Ritz Hotel Bar, now named after Hemingway, where he would drink champagne with F. Scott Fitzgerald. Or you can stop by Shakespeare & Co. Bookstore, where he met James Joyce. There are Hemingway walking tours in both of those aforementioned cities, and in many more. There are few people, let alone fiction writers, who have left such a physical legacy in so many places. I still think you can go to the places he went and order the drinks he ordered, and eat the food he ate, and wander the streets he wandered, and the buildings haven't changed. So there's still something to touch there. I mean, they've they're become like stations on a cross or a pilgrimage that you could spend your life going to the places he wrote about and seeing them for yourself. I think it's also amazing when you do go to these places, you can kind of recognize the place as he represented it, even if it's 100 years later, and that is pretty amazing. You then can understand why even to this day, people are trampling to uh, Key West and looking at his house and going to Sloppy Joe's and um, imagining the fights he got into and the beautiful leggy blondes uh, that he came on to and the fish that he, uh, stories that he told about or exaggerated. Key West might be the city most associated with Hemingway in the world, and its tourism industry does not shy away from that legacy. The town holds marling fishing tournaments and Hemingway look-alike contests at Sloppy Joe's, his favorite bar. And his house, as Ken mentioned, draws tens of thousands of visitors per year, and there's even a 24-7 webcam you can look at right now to maybe catch a glimpse of some of the cats that still live in the building. Several of the homes he lived in are museums, and you can go there. I'm not sure how he would have felt about people wandering in and out and looking at his world. And I always feel in any kind of home, museum, but it's a little intrusive. I think the house in Key West is really complicated for him. In his own lifetime, Key West popularity grew, and as Hemingway was a bona fide American celebrity, tourists began showing up at his house, property he bought, ironically, for its privacy. So a frustrated Hemingway decided to move 105 miles south to Havana, Cuba. I've been to his home in Cuba and to bars like Floridita and Havana, where tourists pack into the bar to drink like Hemingway. We were thinking about filming in the Floridita, so we definitely went there to check it out. I found it a little unnerving. It was packed with people coming off cruise ships. There was just like a, a huge crowd in the middle of the day, kind of, it was very boisterous. It was a little, um, it's hard to really explain. I, I didn't have the greatest vibe with the Floridita, but I think they do have great daiquiris there. So, and many people who were there had had many of them. I'll just say that. And his palatial home just outside of the city is now one of Cuba's biggest tourist attractions. Taxidermied animal heads line the walls, and his typewriter is set up in front of a gorgeous mountain view. This space has an even more personal glimpse into his life, which further complicates things. He fled his home when Castro's regime took control of the island, and the house was left basically untouched, frozen in time. I'd heard for years about Hemingway's home in Havana, but I couldn't, and I'd seen pictures of it, you know. 
but I didn't quite understand what it was until I went there myself. But he definitely wanted to be away from people and have his own kind of kingdom on a hill. It's a magical kind of haunted place to see where he lived and where he left so abruptly that everything he left behind, you know, everything he owned basically was in that house. It's a slightly eerie and you feel a little, a bit like an intruder to be in the space. And why did he have this book, you know, on the bedside table and, you know, how he arranged his clothes in the closet. Like everything in there tells you something about him. Hemingway's public life was a counterintuitive balancing act. He tried to maintain his privacy while also creating a larger-than-life myth around himself. He struggled to live a genuine life, whatever that meant, while also being a public figure. With his influence in the world of travel and his well-documented trips around the world, it's easy to make a connection between what he did back then and, in some ways, what travel influencers on Instagram are doing right now. Oh, I, I absolutely think that if he were alive today, he would be some kind of influencer. He had this larger-than-life persona and the charisma, and the camera loved him, and he would, and he had a great way of expressing himself and interest in getting his word out and reaching people, and also this enthusiasm for experience. So you see it in his writing when he's describing, you know, the beads of sweat on a bottle of wine, or you know, his use of the five senses and his descriptions of experience are so vivid and so beautiful, and you could translate that into some kind of influencer presence, I think. What he appreciates about the good things in life, you know, really great food, really great wine, a really beautiful place, a gorgeous sunset, African landscape and animals, the things that he cared about aesthetically, he wants you to appreciate them. And I think that's why, you know, to this day, people make pilgrimages to the places he wrote about. To be fair, Ken Burns disagrees with this notion slightly. He's different from the influencers who are about being kind of stuck in a kind of all-consuming present. He's conscious of bigger and wider forces. And let's remember that travel writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, is a hugely honorable tradition. I mean, his hero, Mark Twain, is that. There's, there's lots of great novels by Mark Twain, but there's as much nonfiction that Twain is, is responsible for. And that if we can see echoes of both Twain and particularly Hemingway in today's influencers and media people, it's only because we're all curious about what's going on. And I think that Hemingway really suffered from the fact that he invented something and then began to believe his own PR. It trips him up just as I think we feel a kind of shallowness, a kind of emptiness, a kind of transitoriness to all of the stuff that is out there as if it's just skywriting and the next breeze, it disappears. So how did Hemingway influence Ken and Lynn, two people who have been around the world, experiencing many of the things Hemingway himself experienced? In our conversation, I brought up Hemingway's most famous quote about travel. Never go on trips with anyone you do not love. That is such great advice. That is such great advice. Hemingway loved a lot of different people and had many different experiences with them. And I'm speaking about his four wives. So part of his romances involved taking people places, the women that he was with, and showing them the things that mattered to him. And I'm sure that that did draw them closer. Just seeing the thing you love through somebody else's eyes is a really beautiful thing. And I've done that myself many times. And I think being on a trip with someone that you don't get along with is pretty torturous. So it can ruin a great experience if you're not having, you know, you can't connect with the person that you're with. So I think that is spectacularly good advice. You could also fall in love on a trip. So 
you don't have to necessarily love the person before you go, but by the time it's over, you should hope that you will. Well, I like two kinds of travel. I like travel alone, the solitude of discovering a place and watching my own responses to this place and seeing the way in which I behave differently than my normal day-to-day self would where I live. But I also know that the only travel that really matters is with the ones you love. It is something in travel that requires you to shed your own baggage and preconception about the other. You can't be prejudiced and travel to any extent. Um, and that's, to me, the great gift of travel. It, it, it sort of removes the blinders from your eyes and um, wakes you up in a way that then I think you come home, and that word has so much meaning, to come home with, with a renewed uh, energy and, and vigor to, to do what you're supposed to be doing. And it's really hard to set that baggage down and let it get lost, have it be on a carousel in some other place, and us free now with just the clothes on our backs to experience things as they are. And Hemingway is a really good example of that, I think. To learn more about Hemingway's life, including his experience in combat, his multiple trips to East Africa, which we didn't even get to here, his complicated familial life and potentially problematic legacy, and the last years of his life in the mountains of Idaho, where, yes, yet another one of his homes has been turned into a tourist destination, check out Hemingway, a three-part docuseries that premieres on PBS on April 5th from Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with producer Mia Fask interviewing Mr. Eddie Wong. It's good stuff. Stick around. You might know Eddie Huang as the author of the best-selling memoir, Fresh Off the Boat, or as an award-winning chef, or as the host of the travel show, Huang's World. Now, Eddie is adding another line to his resume, writer slash director. His new movie, Boogie, about an Asian-American basketball prodigy growing up in Flushing, Queens, is in theaters right now. He called in to talk about the movie, how he finds restaurants when he travels, and a whole lot more. Here's our call. Um, yeah, Eddie, nice to virtually meet you. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. So I want to get into Boogie, but first I I just want to ask you some travel questions because I know you're quite a globetrotter yourself. <laughs> and this is a travel podcast. So um, in terms of like major foodie destinations, and I know you've been to most of them, what city or country would you recommend specifically for people who travel and like to kind of base their entire vacations around eating like myself? Toronto comes to mind. Honestly, Toronto has incredible food. You get really good West Indian food, Jamaican food, incredible Asian food. Uh, Toronto is quite good. The people are really friendly too. And, and, and also it's like a multicultural city. You have like close to that diversity of somewhere like New York, but everybody's a little friendlier. In New York in general, what are your favorite restaurants? Mm. I'm always happy to give the top five. Number one. Peter Uga Steakhouse. Number two, the Farah Pizza. Number three, Great New York Noodle Town. And then number four and five, they shift a little bit, right? They, they shift sometimes, but you know what? I may just end with those three because the other ones, 
they don't even come close. But now if you want just one cuisine and one place where they just do one cuisine really, really well, Chengdu. Sichuan food in Chengdu. Chengdu is a phenomenal eating city. I love a boozy, boozy lunch, like two o'clock lunch, you know, eat some escargot, eat some cocavine, drink some burgundy. You're not going to beat that. Speaking of that, do you have a favorite city for like nightlife or bar drinking cities? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Taiwan is a fantastic place for nightlife because you could like eat hot pot, then go to an izakaya, then end up in the club till 5 a.m., and then go eat Taiwanese breakfast at 6. I love partying in Taipei. I also really enjoy... Miami, for me, with the food is more the day after, like the hangover food. Like, I'll wake up at 2 p.m., 3 p.m., you know, I'll go to uh, Little Havana, get a, like, you know, pan con lechon, and uh, I'll go to La Camaronera, and I'll get the, like, fried shrimp and the fish sandwich. La Casita is great for Cuban food. I might eat a lot of Cuban food, a lot of Haitian food. I mean, you got Joe Stone Crab out there, too. You know, Joe Stone Crab is phenomenal, so... Dinner's at Joe Stone Crab and then go out to the club. And then Little Havana the next day. Little Havana the next day and then you do it all over again. You're back at the Soho house at like 6 o'clock drinking out of a coconut and you're good. Nobody says this. The lobster at Tootsie's is very, very good in Miami. You know, I I ate two lobster tails and Tootsie's last time because my friend fell asleep in the strip club and I ate his lobster tail. (laughs) Then the manager of Tootsie's company is like, look, I'm so sorry. The Lobsters is on the house, but we have to move you. I say, why are you moving us? The Sheik is coming. This is the Sheik's table. I said, oh. And then the Sheik guy like actually walked up. I was like, okay, I get it. We will move for the Sheik. So the Lobster Tails were on the house. Oh my gosh. <laughs> was your friend like, what happened to my Lobster Tail? Yeah, he, we literally were like, like, yo, get up, dude. He's like, what? what? I'm like, the Sheik is coming. He's like, dude, who's the Sheik? And then he turned, oh, the Sheik, and then he moved. <laughs> the amount of times I was awoke from a nap because of the Sheik. Yeah. <laughs> and so my last question is, when you're traveling, how important is it to you to, I guess, eat at local restaurants and kind of immerse yourself in, in local culture? And how do you go about doing that? Oh, completely. It's, it's, it's really, really important. Um, I mean, I only will eat at local restaurants. And I like to go to the places that people, like, carry out food from. And where do you eat when, like, mom and dad are working and you want an affordable meal? Like, I really like that. I like the places cab drivers go to. And, and you know, I, I would always ask, like, whoever was the driver, uh, where they eat, and then try to just find the local spots but the way I really get into local culture is playing basketball and going to the boxing gym basketball I can be anonymous and I got to see a lot more about people and who they are and what they believe in because every country plays basketball different and you can really see the values of a society and their point of view in the way they play same with a boxing gym um, but to me, it's it's about meeting, you know, the, the village people and getting in there and experiencing that. that. That always taught me the most. I feel like restaurants are museums or art galleries in a way where 
the job of the restaurant is to distribute local culture. You know, you're doing it at an affordable price. Everybody can come, everyone can participate. You get a ticket for five bucks and you get a meet in three sides. And I really think that it is important to remember that that is the function of restaurants in our society. That is so interesting. And that's such a cool way to meet locals on the basketball court. And isn't that how you found Taylor Takahashi was on the basketball court? Yeah. Yeah, I met I met Taylor in a rec league basketball league here in uh, Monterey Park, San Gabriel Valley, and he's the all time leading scorer Alameda High. And there's just not many Asian basketball players at his level, and that were age appropriate for the role. And just for that reason alone, I just kept my eye on him. And then I hired him as my assistant. And the more I got to know him, and the more I peeled back the layers, I was he's I think he's boogie, you know. And, and it was a secret I kept up until two weeks before shooting. And then, and then I had him audition and it was undeniable how good he was. And the studio supported me. One thing I noticed while watching the film was how much it really made me miss being out and about in New York. And I guess the, you know, the city almost kind of serves as its own character in a sense in the movie. New York is, you know, it is a place I absolutely love, but I love it for all of its positives and all of its negatives. And I think you see that in this film and you see all of the wrinkles, the crevices and the things that are stinky, but then the things that are beautiful. And then you realize the things that are stinky make it beautiful. That is also, it's a very intuitive question you ask because that's where my experience shooting food travel documentary came in. I know this is kind of like your directorial debut, like was there a major difference between filming like your show versus filming this movie? And what were the major differences that you noticed? In terms of my attitude and in terms of my approach, not much. My personality is the same, but the level of intensity definitely is higher. You know, like on Wong's World, everyone worked really hard and everyone was, was there to win. But then I get off work and I realize like, what, like you're, we're breaking ourselves to make a food travel show, like relax. But in film, that's the major leagues and people, these are, this is their life dream. This is the penultimate, you know, cinema. And there may be somebody on set every day that wants to work harder than you do. And I love that. I will always remember this. Dominic Lombarduzzi, fantastic actor, um, plays Coach Hawkins in the film, had a really big break in The Irishman. His, his manager and agent had reached out to us to say, look, Dom, cannot make it for this scene because this is a huge night in his career and he's got to do the Irishman premiere. And I said, yeah, I, I can write Dom out of this scene. It's fine. Once Dom caught wind of it, he, he shot me a text. He's like, hell no. Nobody's writing me out. I'm coming. Like, this is what I do. I'm an actor, you know? And he missed the premiere of his life for that scene. And I want people to know how dedicated Dom is. That, that gave me juice one day. So, what I love, you know, I'm a, I'm a fun-loving guy. I, I think my crew loved me, and <laughs> I, I think they did. But uh, I really work hard, and, and I love the transition of film because every single person, every day is ride or die. Thanks to Eddie for all the great advice here, and go check out his new movie, Boogie, in theaters right now. We're going to take one more quick break but we'll be right back to wrap things up.
Okay, that's it for us. Remember, if you like our show, we'd love it if you gave us a five-star review. It really means a lot to us. And as the season is winding down, we'd once again love to hear some of your own favorite travel stories to share them on the show. So call in to one pod baby right now. It's free. It takes two minutes. It's kind of fun. And we'd love to hear from you. All right, so thanks to the Thrillist podcast team, my fellow producers, Jake Rasmussen and Mia Fask, editors Dean White and Abby Austria, Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, Brett Kushner, Emily Feld, and from iHeartRadio, Mangesh Hadakudor. You've reached the end of the episode, so I will leave you with a fun fact. In Hemingway's Key West house, you can find a urinal from his favorite Key West bar, Sloppy Joe's. He reappropriated it into a fountain, which you can see in his garden. And no, you are not allowed to pee in it. All right, that's it for us. We'll see you next week. Bye.